0: The Canby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional territories of the Kwikwitlam, Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabek, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. March 5th, 2023, and there are 1,322 days left until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor.
1: I'm Ian Bushfield. It's, it's budget season. We had a provincial budget. It is still before the legislature, but in the time it took them to read the budget speech in Victoria, they passed one in Vancouver. We're going to talk about that.
0: Yes, so Vancouver... Well, basically, Vancouver decided that it didn't have enough money.
1: Matthew, speaking of money, we have to ask for money.
0: Oh, yes, of course.
1: We're so excited to talk about money today. Give us some money, patreon.com slash Report.
0: <laughs> yes, patreon.com slash Report, your source for citizen journalism here in the glorious city of Vancouver and its environs. Uh if you can afford it after your property tax increase... Please consider chipping a couple of bucks in to keep this podcast on the air or on the internet, I guess.
1: Yeah, on the web. It it flows over some Wi-Fi. Vancouver budget. So city staff, they came forward going, uh, times are tight. Inflation is high. Wages need to go up. Infrastructure needs to be renewed. All of these additional charges people are going to have to pay 9.7% more just to keep up without any additional commitments from council. And, Matthew, how did our fiscally conservative no-budget-increase-promise new council respond to that?
0: They took a look at that and said, Humbug! Absolutely not! And instead, increased it by (laughs) 10.7%. Amazing. So... No notes. Yeah, like... Well done. I love looking at the tweets that Sarah Kirby Young and Lisa Dominato and Rebecca Bly uh, talked about during their previous term on Council when they're like, Ooh, this 6.7% increase is too much for the poor taxpayers of Vancouver. Little did they know.
1: Turns out governing is hard and requires some difficult decisions. Ken Sim and ABC seem to have realized that. Um, Ken Sim's quote on the budget increases. It sucks, pithy, accurate, yep. but also you are in charge of it. So
0: basically what what does this mean for the average person in Vancouver? So the average single family home is going to end up paying about uh, 470 bucks more next year. The owner of the average condo will pay an extra 150 bucks. Uh, are going to be in the brunt of this, they will be paying approximately $670 more.
1: Yeah, so that additional increase, the original increase kind of spread across the board with small increases, 1% here, 1% there, 27 for the Vancouver police, and just kind of 5% trickling to grow the city to meet the growing city's needs. Now, it came out just ahead, and then it was released as kind of an omnibus motion, as BC has a governing majority, and they can pre-plan things, and... Be efficient. Lots more money. So four point one nine million to Vancouver Fire Rescue, another six hundred thousand dollars for grass and plant maintenance, that mowing the grass is finally gonna happen.
0: I mean three hundred thousand dollars to engineering services, this I'm very gratified to see because they were like considering cutting things like dikes when they were talking about finding efficiencies, $180,000 for cleaning grants to support plazas and parklets, and $110,000 to the Vancouver Public Library to hire one person to train staff in crisis prevention and intervention. Now, they're still saying that they want to find the efficiencies that they promised, but I think they've decided that they'd rather do some stuff rather than cut some stuff. And, like, honestly, I kind of feel like that's the the general distribution disposition of most people when they get into government
1: like i'll give them a bit of charitable credit here it's hard to find efficiencies like it's not going to magically churn up overnight that you can solve all the issues or turn the city around so i'm sure they will find I mean, some told, things to we cut told but them that <laughs> yeah that was not going to happen in 100 days Buried further down in the motion was another $3.4 million for the Vancouver Police Department. This covered various things, including cost of living adjustments, $670,000 to cover statutory holiday pay for Truth and Reconciliation Day, which they get holiday pay just like any other worker, but some people flag that on Twitter. Uh, money for body-worn cameras, money for cell phones, $415,000. And then just, you know money across the board for a lot of different things. This was a 20-point motion brought forward by Councillor Kirby Young. What's really interesting here is this budget wasn't controversial. I I said it went through in the same day. Usually budgets take quite a while and could be quite contentious like they were in the previous council. But here, even with a council that's majority, they still got unanimous votes on most of this. It seems like Boyle and the Greens didn't take issue with giving money to firefighters and to engineering and the library. Things that are pretty unobjectionable, especially for the progressives on the on council. The only line item that got some pushback was from Councillor Boyle, who opposed some of the increases for the Vancouver Police Department. That was more of a symbolic vote by herself in the corner than was going to do anything. Because also, as we learned, even if council voted against the police department budget, they could still yeah. get it.
0: Go figure. So, like, we've been saying that Vancouver is undertaxed for some time. 10.7% is a hefty increase. Um. So, like, acknowledging that, I-, I think this is within the bounds of being bearable. Like, it, it certainly... As things go, less than the increase in the value of the properties are going to be, like, people are going to gain more equity than they are paying in tax.
1: They have. It's been a weird year in the real estate market where things have jumped and then come back a bit. But overall, if you've held your home for more than a year or two, you've definitely accrued those gains on paper at least, and for many people with limited cash income, you can defer your property taxes so it's not like a real hit to you today. What I what I find really fascinating about this is the politics, right? Because Ken Sam and ABC come in saying, we need to keep taxes down, every increase has been too much, and they had to make that tough choice, right? Do they fund the promises that they made and the continued operation of a largely effectively run city for all the complaints people have? your garbage gets picked up right pothills generally get filled although maybe not as fast like things get done in vancouver and it's a nice place to live people want to live there and so the question is do you go austerity or do you like eat the political hay and like this is year one of a four-year mandate if there's a time when ken sim can take the hit of being the high tax mayor it's today
0: Yes. And, like, politically, I think this is probably the, the wisest thing to do. People don't want to see their engineering services be unable to do the engineering that they want. Like, if city services start to crumble, people will object. And that will come back to bite a mayor and their party in the ass in the next election.
1: As it did for the previous one. Yes. so. There you have it. A budget with little controversy, but a big headline. It's just fascinating how different this was than the last four years.
0: In our next story, the headline isn't going to come now. It's going to come much later and it's going to be much more disastrous. Port Coquilum has increased its property taxes by only 3.38%. They are doing this to save people money and also in doing so, they are putting basically no cash in their cash reserve.
1: Yeah, I think this was most notable because as news of the 10.7% increase in Vancouver came out, Brad West was tweeting about how, like, low-tax Coquitlam is, and they're like, we kept ours to 3.38, what are you guys doing over there? Like, the subtle, like, he didn't directly name Vancouver, but it was clearly time to be like, haha, we don't have to pay as much. And Justin McElroy, with Metro Matters, CBC's newsletter, interviews him and asks him, like, can you really afford to do this? And he says, you know, I get it. In 50 years, we might have to replace a piece of infrastructure that's going to be very expensive, and it is responsible to put money away for that. But at the same time, you have to balance that with the current taxpayer's ability to pay. And, like, it just makes me think that poor Coquitlam is being run like an irresponsible strata. Yeah, They're not paying their maintenance fees, they have no reserve, and the building's gonna fall apart. Oh well, I guess
0: Port Coquitlam chose this when they elected- oh wait, they didn't elect Brad West, they just acclaimed him. Democracy kind of short-circuited in Port Coquitlam last time around, and this is what you get.
1: It's not like they were gonna vote for the guy who was like, or woman or person who was like, I'll raise taxes by a sufficient amount to make sure we have a healthy reserves. None of these people are going to be mayor when Port Coquitlam's facilities start crumbling. And they are literally crumbling in Vancouver at the moment, and they're facing 10% increase. So maybe I just don't even know what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, we did have a side of the aquatic center fall off. (laughs) Back in Vancouver, a secret meeting has been used to kill the living wage policy. So up until the passage of this policy, the city had been a certified living wage employer for about uh, like more than five years uh, and they haven't like precisely killed the policy like they have amended the policy but basically what they are doing is instead of paying the living wages for families bc estimated rate quote the city will now pay wages based on a five-year rolling average of the rate
1: it does mean they will not be certified as a living wage employer anymore uh- There's like two interesting aspects to this. The first is that it was done in camera last month and it was done, I think, before a series of articles came out speculating whether the city would maintain its status as a certified living wage employer, given the change in administration. It turns out they'd already made the decision, just they didn't tell anyone about it because they did it in a closed meeting. And I think their justification for doing that was it deals with employment issues when you change a policy, you do have to publicize the results of that vote, that it changed yeah, something. <laughs> Someone's going to find out when you make a change in a closed meeting.
0: Yeah, in-camera meetings are, are for, like, dealing with specific employees, at least in my understanding. Like, y- you should be doing the broad contract stuff out in the open, if you're able to. And, like, I don't know if there's any specific, partic- like, policy that would prevent them from doing so, but if there was, I would find that odd.
1: Yeah, it was a weird decision to go in-camera for this. And I, looking into this, see where the city came from, and I wonder if this did originate from staff as a recommendation at first, the living wage this year actually jumped by 17%, and I went and found the report itself and verified this number because this is what the city was claiming, but it went from $20.90 an hour to $24.08 per hour, so Three over $3 increase, which is a pretty nice chunk of change for city workers. The city had basically just been setting their minimum wage as the living wage, and looking at the report itself from the Living Wages for Families BC and the CCPA, they say the policy changes over the last three years have actually counterbalanced the cost of living in many ways. These are policies from the provincial and federal governments, like Childcare care benefits and just putting money back in people's pockets. And they say, as a result, the Metro Vancouver living wage declined significantly in 2019 and remained below its 2018 level until this year. Those savings from the affordability improvements have been completely wiped out by rising cost of living, though, and so we jumped by 17%. They then, in the next paragraph, also point out that they changed their calculation for housing costs because they realized they'd been under-calculating and not really reflecting true housing costs, and that also bumped the number up a bit.
0: Okay, so, like, on the face of this, you know, I I acknowledge that this uh, impacts you directly, like, this blows, but this does suck. However, like, 70% over one year is a huge increase for the city to bear, and... Uh, it It's also, like, if the, the cost of living goes down, you you don't really want to be seeing decreases in city wages. I, I actually think a five-year rolling average isn't a terrible way to do that.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the other things. Like, the city staff seem to also point out that, like, this annual jumping around from this report makes it a bit administratively difficult for a large employer, and I could see that. Now, yeah, I, I think this is probably a reasonable, in the end, way to balance it out. It does cost them their certification. Presumably if the you know, calculation stays largely the same over the next few years, I don't think they want to change it dramatically every year or else they totally discredit their methodology. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a messy situation. And I, I see why the decision was made, but it would have been nice to have councillors on the record. Instead, we have Councillor Christine Boyle, who opposed the decision, speaking out that she did, and one city is petitioning and challenging as much as they can in the public domain. But we don't really have the statements from any other councillors about what they thought.
0: No, and that would have been nice to have, again, like, this isn't the kind of thing that should have been done in, in private, this should have been out in the open. I get it. like. Th- this kind of thing sucks, but... Uh, as
1: Ken Sim would say.
0: Y- yes. Uh, that is where I was getting it. <laughs> you know, as for other municipalities around the province, Port Coquitlam, Cornell, and Victoria are paying the increased living wage. So, in, in, you know, let it be known that I do want people to be uh, paid a, a living wage, but, like, there, there does have to be, I think, some accountability for uh, the people who are deciding these policies... <laughs> You can't do it in private (laughs) speaking of accountability
1: we have progress vancouver's election report in they were late we didn't have it last episode for when we did our breakdown of the public financing and for the assignment that was turned in late this is this is a doozy of a document now a number of different candidates turned theirs in late and they weren't very notable the entire team I believe cast of candidates all turned in their very basic reports late, like Bill Thielman and Colleen Hardwick. This is the individual candidate, the electoral organization, the party put its in, and that's where all the finances were accounted for. Individuals still have to put their own ins and just say we didn't spend any money personally, it was all through the party. That's not really notable. Progress is though it's first interesting to see, you know, where did they sit on the spending spectrum? They raised $256,000 and we need to come back to that m- number in a second and they spent $265,000, so which was significantly less than one city who spent 400,000 and more than like the Greens and Vision Vancouver who I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was like 160,000. So a mod- a modest amount, they ran a mayoral campaign, but it you know, placed fourth and they struggled to Go beyond that
0: so this is where we get into some of the more interesting stuff there is let's say irregularities and inappropriate accounting on the report that has been turned in basically progress has accepted a fifty thousand dollar loan from a man named jason mclean in february 2022 which was solicited to finance the day-to-day administration of progress vancouver this was basically supposed to be their they're outside of the campaign period operating expenses. However, this isn't allowed. The party basically didn't do their homework and uh, forgot about the December 1st, 2021 proclamation of the Local Election Statutes Amendment Act, which basically says that all loans to an electoral organization are loans for election expenses and subject to the prescribed limit on loans for non-financial institutions. I know that's a you know, mouthful, but basically they uh, accepted money when they shouldn't have, and that is bad.
1: Yeah, this is filled out under the prohibited loan section of the return. So they acknowledge that, oh, we done fucked up. They go on to state in their disclosure that Progress Vancouver became aware of the amendments having come into effect only after it had paid bills for the purposes set out above. It hoped to be able to return Mr. McLean's loans through campaign contributions, but has not been successful to date in doing so. In other words, they were going to pay him back, but they just spent the money and haven't raised enough to pay him back yet. And they are continuing to solicit donations, hoping to replay him, (laughs) which as many a failed leadership candidates in many different races will attest is not easy. So good luck, Mark and crew. So credit to Bob Mackin, for flagging that cuz he wrote it up in business in Vancouver and that's where I saw it and that was neat and that got me to actually scroll through the entire report it's still messy you go in the report itself they include like every other party does the list of donations they got and the list of names in there and i'm not going to go through and find like the fancy names of the developers some other people have already done that it's not as notable at this point what I found notable was the string of names that were just listed as deposit-check-need dash dash name or need names. This included a $7,500 deposit on April 20th, 2022, and a $15,000 deposit on September 16th, 2022, of checks.
0: There were a bunch of other donations that were simply listed as e-transfer or Stripe, including several that hit the max donation allowable under the Act.
1: Which, like they didn't report any anonymous donations, and they're not supposed to be accepting anonymous donations at that level, for sure. And so,
0: Sloppy. yeah. Like it's, it's, it's clearly like priorities were elsewhere, and they didn't care enough to cross their I's and dot their T's, as the case may be, while the uh, actual election was going on. Also notable is that they are on the list of Elections BC's latent disqualified candidates. The notice that because they ran someone for director of Electoral Area A, needed to file two different disclosure statements. They only filed one disclosure statement for both the city of Vancouver and Electoral Area A. These are different jurisdictions. They're not allowed to do that. Needs to be two forms.
1: Embarrassing. But
0: as someone as someone who has forgotten to file their forms for Electoral Area A, I sympathize and hope they were able to rectify the mistake as painlessly as possible.
1: Yeah, I don't know what next steps Elections BC will be taking on this. They haven't posted the individual donations in the database yet from this year, so presumably they're still analyzing this and the other late forms in sanctions could be anywhere from you know additional fines to disqualification in future elections which you know a lot of people across the province have been disqualified from running in the next election including a significant number of candidates in SD92 the Nisga School District don't know what happened up there but a whole bunch of people decided not to file their paperwork so if you are in the Nisga School District get in touch with us and tell us what happened
0: from clearing checks to clearing tents. Vancouver is apparently stepping up its efforts to clear downtown east side streets, including bylaw notices and confiscating belongings.
1: Yeah, I've seen a couple individual accounts of this people messaging or posting on social media. And we have a Vancouver Sun piece now fully writing it up of, you know, individuals in the downtown east side who are homeless are living on the street and are giving their accounts of police sweeps essentially. Pivot is out there with them calling these actions a charter violations, pretty much alluding to similar rulings that have happened in Abbotsford and elsewhere when individuals are not provided adequate housing as an alternative before they are evicted from tent city. And so the question here is, what is the city providing to people they are asking to leave or are they not really forcing them to leave, or are they just kind of saying, hey, you should move, and in some cases, they're not forcing it. It's a bit messy, the facts in this one. That's
0: Yeah, and w- what I am unclear on is who is doing this. My suspicion is that it is like under under the direction of the city and, and still under a- ABC slash... Police initiative. Uh, the the province has said that they are going to take over operations in the downtown mm-hmm. east side, but that is going to be a, quite a schmuzzle to coordinate and control, especially when you have all these different organizations that like can kind of act on their own initiative. Mm-hmm. The city is claiming that they are offering shelter for the residents that are being removed, but like what exactly that is, we don't know the specifics of. Oftentimes these these offerings are inadequate and make people feel less safe than living on the street, which is really saying something about the state of social housing in the city of Vancouver.
1: Exactly. That's what Nathan Griffiths, the Vancouver Sun journalist, gets into in his piece really well, that, you know, it's worth reading and just kind of getting a sense of what's happening from that perspective. It's a tough situation. And yeah, I had totally forgotten that the province was planning to step in and everything quoted in here is from the city. So my sense is that it's still the city versus rather than David E.B. in the province. Yeah.
0: From SRO hotels to a brand spanking new hotel, a new hotel has been proposed at 516 to 534 West Pender Street. Marcon is calling for a hotel that is going to be 578 rooms in a 32-story, 100% hotel tower at the southwest corner of the intersection at West Pender Street and Richard Street.
1: Yeah, this is just a very preliminary development application as far as I can tell, but it's very notable, right? Because Vancouver has not had a hotel built, a big hotel in a while. And particularly through the pandemic, hotel rooms, a couple hotels shut down, a couple were converted to temporary housing. And so hotel rates are obscene in downtown Vancouver. And alleviating that you know it's not like the number one priority in most people's minds the you know housing crunch but if you want to be a city that attracts a tourist industry as Vancouver does you need you need hotel spaces and this is a cool project that looks like it will fill a nice space and they're replacing a parking garage. It couldn't even be better from that point.
0: Yeah, I was talking with a friend the other day about how how so many politicians keep talking about how they want to stop the war on cars and me just sitting in the corner thinking, no, the war on cars must begin at once. And eliminating a parking garage and bringing in a tourist-generating place is a good place to start. From a project in downtown Vancouver to a project on the Fraser River in Burnaby, a green waste facility is going to, and this is something I hadn't heard of before, the alternative approval process.
1: Yeah, I don't know if anyone had heard of this other than, like, whoever wrote the law decades ago, and it changed to this from the counter-petition proposal. So the project itself is a $182 million green organic waste facility that would be constructed on... 21 acres of parkland within Fraser Foreshore Park. This is the park that's against the Fraser River, basically the southernmost tip of Burnaby, south of Marine Way at Big Bend Market Crossing. It's a very forgettable piece of Burnaby, unless you drive Marine Way a lot. I looked at a map and was like, isn't this Vancouver? Oh no, wait, it's that, like, part of Burnaby where there are farms.
0: Yeah, although I, I have worked for a number of organizations that are headquartered down there, and, like, I have used that park before. It's a nice park. It's a nice park. It's it's very fun to ride your bike on in, in, in the connection between, like, the horrible-smelling fish plant, whatever that thing is at the the edge of Vancouver, and
1: U.S. Uh, Minster so... So the awkward thing for the city is... Under the Community Charter, they can't just dispose of parkland and convert it to whatever they want to do with it using normal council processes. Changing a park to a green waste facility would require a referendum, except there's a secret alternative approval process available to skip the referendum. Explain it.
0: Basically, if 10% of registered voters, so in Burnaby's case, this means 16,250, petition the proposal. The city either has to nix the project or go to referendum. If those signatures aren't received, the process passes without going to referendum. So basically, this is this is this is saying that it, it transforms it from a, a positive approval process to a negative approval process. If the uproar is so great that Save the Park campaign, which I'm sure will eventually bring into action, decides that you know they will mobilize enough time and money and, and volunteers to get those sixteen thousand two hundred and fifty people to sign, the city actually like not even go to a referendum in this, they're just going to not proceed.
1: Yeah, and part of the reason they decided to enable this situation this tool was that they say it's cheaper in the end, like because they don't need to print out ballots and mail them to every Burnaby resident and do a full mail-in ballot initiative over this and referendum. So they can just post on their website that, you know, here you can download a form, sign it, send it to us if you are against this. And, you know, if 16,251 or 16,250 people do that, they kill the project. I don't know what they do about green waste in the meantime, because presumably there's a demand for this facility. I guess it'll have to go somewhere else.
0: Yeah, but, whatever, I don't know, whatever they're doing with it right now.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just a really fascinating process. It, it initially, to me, looked like the council was entirely shirking their responsibilities and just being like, well, we're going to do this project. We'll give 10% a like, citizen's veto which sounded wild until I recognized that they had to either do this or a referendum. And I don't know which is better. In that I don't think either of us, okay.
0: (laughs) Like this is better. Referendums are bad. We shouldn't govern by them. Like I acknowledge that park space is a huge issue and we, we shouldn't dispose of it lightly. Citizenry is not equipped to make granular policy decisions, it's not what democracies sh- are, are like, this isn't how we should govern ourselves. Uh, yeah, I I, I, <laughs> I acknowledge that you were probably going to say, I don't think either of us is particularly in favor of referenda, and the answer yeah. is yes, I am not.
1: What's also fascinating here is Burnaby's turnout in the last election, they, like Porco Coquitlam, did not have a contested mayor's race, it's below 20% they need roughly half of the number of people who voted to actually turn out for this, and this is going to be a lower information situation than the... what's the official election campaign? Five weeks? Eight weeks? Whatever it was.
0: Yeah, uh basically, this parks days are numbered, this isn't going to happen, and we should all prepare for a delightful new way to dispose of green waste in Burnaby, because it's coming
1: the council unanimously supported going this way although two councilors Allison Gu and Daniel Tetro both of the Burnaby Citizens Association BCA got motions through asking staff to from Gu to explore ballot request process and see if there's a way to make it very easy for citizens to get ballots or an initiative petition forms in this case and Tetro's motion was to help promote engagement making sure that people could be aware the situation was happening although as some of the media coverage notes, it's awkward for the city to kind of raise awareness about an issue that they probably want to happen, uh, but then people will have to write in if they are against. It's like, here's this great thing we're doing, don't complain about it. Mm-hmm. But if you want yeah. to, here's how.
0: Yeah, like, it's, I, I don't know, that's, that's sort of the kind of thing that a responsible democracy has to do uh, like I, I support this as a alternative to like a dumb parks land disposal process uh, green waste does need to be dealt with somehow so
1: i think what's notable is that two counselors also from the bca voted against Gu and Tetrol's motions this is sab dolly and pietro Calandino they argued, citizens already have plenty of information about this. Don't worry about it. It'll, it'll be fine. I, so I think there's a bit of a split there between Gu and Tetral, who are probably a bit more sympathetic to the Save the Park position, and Wall and Calendino to just the, like, let's get the money and build the big waste facility. I'm reading between the lines there, but... If you want to save the park, go to burnaby.ca, find the form, and get it in by April 28th. I've seen already in a few of the Burnaby forums, like, people are mad about this. It will be interesting to watch if it actually happens, or doesn't.
0: You're not the only one reading between the lines. The Surrey Police Union has read into the actions of one councillor, Rob Stutz, a vote and other activities on the Public Safety Committee, which is involved in the return to RCMP... Uh, basically, Councillor Rob Studd, who is ex-RCMP himself, his son works for the RCMP and his daughter works for the city, but is seconded to the RCMP.
1: Uh, the Just Surrey a bunch un- of cops.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Surrey police union claims this cl- creates a conflict of interest that should have been declared and he should have recused himself from votes on the RCMP contract. And we're back at it, beating the drum of what constitutes pot of interest? What is a pecuniary interest or an indirect pecuniary interest with respect to municipalities in British Columbia? Is this a conflict of interest itself? And the answer is no, probably not.
1: Yeah, that comes from our reading and understanding of the community charter and the conflict of interest provisions therein, as well as Surrey's own code of conduct, which basically just references community charter they have a section in there on conflicts of interest and they say a council member shall rigorously avoid situations which may result in claims of pecuniary interest there you go conflict of interest or bias I don't know how council members avoid all situations that result in claims of bias seems like their job
0: literally the job of an elected official is to take positions on things what is that other than bias
1: what's notable here is Surrey has a position of ethics commissioner. And that person is being asked by the union to possibly investigate this. Um, they don't actually have an ethics commissioner because Doug McCallum didn't hire a new one, that n- you know notable beacon of ethics and morality and governance, Mayor McCallum. But Brenda Locke is committed to hiring a new one in the next month, so. Thanks.
0: So, no heroes in this story. Everyone is either wrong or wrong or wrong in a different way. Like no, this isn't conflict of interest, they... Like Rob Stuff doesn't have shares in the RCMP. Like he, his pension is safe, his son doesn't create an indirect... Like only your partner can give you like a familial pecuniary interest. I guess, I guess if your children were dependents, I can't imagine that they are.
1: So is that what differentiates the situation in the city of Vancouver, where multiple councillors in the last term especially would recuse themselves from votes on Vancouver Police Department funding, or were they just being overly cautious, do you think?
0: No, 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 like, Dominato and DiGenova are, or, DiGenova at least, it's either Sarah Kirby Young or Lisa Dominato, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but, like, they are married to police officers that that does create a pecuniary interest and so they did need to recuse
1: themselves good to clarify that is not clear is what the fuck is going on in harrison hot springs i mostly want to flag this really good piece from the fraser valley current a great newsletter for politics news if you're in the fraser valley or just want to follow it Um, they all hate the mayor there and the mayor hates the old mayor who is now a counselor.
0: Yeah, what a disaster. Basically, outgoing mayor Leo Fascio decided to run for council instead and endorsed another counselor for mayor. Ed Wood, running for mayor, who he was a Fascio critic, won with 44%, defeating the mayor's pick, who got 34%, and another critic of the former mayor, who got 22%, a resounding win uh, for a new way of operating in the city. However.
1: <laughs> However. Horacio won his seat, and the other three people who were elected to council have allied with him pretty hard. Only five people ran for the four seats, so not a hotly contested race for council. This means that the mayor is kind of on his own, and therefore it's been quite awkward when, for example, at his victory speech, he like complained about the previous council and said, we're going to fix things finally. And people, I guess, were reportedly, including this ex-mayor and other, just walking out on his speech, classy stuff. Speaking of walking out, so has a significant chunk of the village's staff. Two-thirds seem to have quit or have retired as of the end of January of the senior management. There's only one of the three admins who are listed on their contact us page who are still working there. Because I guess they have no one left to update the website.
0: The, like, this is hilarious. So, Ed, Edward, the new mayor, is claiming that the rest of council is meeting behind his back. Uh, this is in part because he has denied requests for closed meetings. They were also asked uh, to receive a 7% cost of living increase, but on January 4th, the councillors voted themselves a 30% increase in their salaries and a $1,000 computer stipend.
1: Fraser Valley Current notes that that accounts for like a 6% increase for the average councillor in Harrison. Like, they are well paid. We're both in favor of politicians being well paid, but Hot Springs, councillors are among the top paid among similar-sized municipalities. They're in the league with Anmore, the, like, wealthy. Oh, boy. <laughs> they're, they're rich out there. They're four part-time yep. small community council. Would decided he did not like the look of this wage increase that included for himself, and so he brought it to a full council meeting out of committee and lost the reconsideration vote four to one. During that meeting, apparently shit hit the fan as he attempted to eject the former mayor Fasio from the meeting, and he just refused to leave. He was allowed to apologize, and then everyone kind of saved face, but it was a mess. There were calls for non-binding votes of confidence. Read the whole story. It's just like, what is happening? And also credit to the... Harrison Agassiz Observer, I believe, is the paper out there that's doing good reporting as well.
0: Uh, So, in in order to solve these, like, total breakdown in council relations, by the way, good luck over the next several years, citizens of Harrison Hot Springs, council has agreed to write a letter, unanimously agreed to write a letter, asking for the inspector of municipalities for help. Just being like, hey, we failed, (laughs) what on earth is
1: happening? Have you ever heard of this position, Matthew? I have not. We're learning so much about municipal governance in this province. We've been doing this podcast for several years now. This is the week for obscure yep. community charters. Yeah,
0: this is year five. like uh, Year five, season three. Uh.
1: So the Fraser Valley Current reached out to the province and learned that the Inspector Municipalities, which is a position designated in legislation of basically a person who's supposed to step in and fix municipalities that are running like shit, which used to be a very frequent problem. And is now, thankfully, not as much. The inspector is technically Tara Faganello, who is the Assistant Deputy Minister for Local Government Division of BC's Ministry of Municipal Affairs. However, being an ADM is a pretty full-time job, so Tara is not really spending, I'm presuming, much of their day inspecting municipalities. It's a title on a piece of paper and not... A serious office, so I'm very interested to find out what the province's answer to "we don't know how to fix our broken council" help will be.
0: Yeah, that that is going to be interesting. I don't know. They might like, like I have no idea actually. Like, no no one has done anything like worthy of punishment here. Uh, Maybe of political scorn, but. It, everything appears to be above board. They, they're they going to need to, like, sit down and learn how to work together, or it's going to be a rough couple of years in Harrison Hot Springs. The Current
1: described it as more dysfunctional than the Chilliwack school board was a few years ago. Oof. That's, yeah, bad.
0: Speaking of school boards, so the Mission School District board has banned a group called Action for Canada from presenting at meetings for one year following them being absolute uh, pieces of shit, I believe is the technical term.
1: Yeah, this all arose at a January 10th meeting where the group showed up, uh, ostensibly to talk about OG policies, LGBTQ materials in schools. Danger, yeah. danger. The allegation is they, that they got screen share on their laptop and they started showing porn like pornographic materials during the school board meeting. Yeah, this is, yeah, I couldn't okay. fully understand it from the coverage in the local black press paper, but it sounded like a mess. Superintendent Angus Wilson was gave a quote to the paper saying, you know, he'd had to meet with them a couple times, and they're concerned about many things in Canada, from immigration to vaccines to 15-minute cities.
0: Which, again, huge, huge red flag. 15-minute cities, like... I I don't know if we've we've touched on this briefly, but like in a previous episode, or, or whether it was something that like I saw and flagged. And basically, there is this huge conspiracy theory now amongst uh, people on on what I would call the uh, lunatic wing of the right uh, that says that the desire to create fifteen minute cities, which is you know where you could walk to things you need without using a car within 15 minutes ie nice livable places that humans have lived in for thousands of years
1: also something I think was in Ken Sims 2018 and 2022 platforms
0: yeah oh evil is is a conspiracy to lock people in their communities like that that
1: it's it's bonkers. They're in it's, the bonkers realm of paranoid delusions.
0: Yeah, it, it's absolute nonsense. Uh, it's a shockingly uh, community. Edmonton has been dealing with this stuff, and it, honestly, I, I'm pretty disheartened by it, because it's like... Uh, municipal politics has, in general, been pretty free from like, the lunatic fringe, and, and this is a thing that has blown up in a big way, and like, it's just a mind virus.
1: I guess this group was also spotted at a local policing forum in Mission, and one witness said that during the land acknowledgement at the start of the meeting, someone from Action for Canada interrupted and said, it, it's God's land, not Indigenous land, which is hell of a thing to just jump in and interrupt someone else's meeting with. Anyway... I saw this headline and was like, banning a group. Am I going to find like some civil libertarian side of me that's sympathetic? And I'm just like, no, this, seem, this seems like the reasonable line to draw where you go, all right, your group can't come back. You can write us a letter, but...
0: Yeah, and uh, I think that segues nicely into our last story of the night. Last week, we were excoriating the city of Coquitlam for never having the like sense to distinguish between, like, Nazis and, like, a Pride society. By flying a Pride flag, their, their excuse had always been, what if an evil group wants to do this? Basically, students were welcomed to Coquitlam City Council by the Coquitlam mayor. They were told that Coquitlam plans to support Pride this year, put up rainbow stickers, and even fly flags on city polls. It's unclear whether this means a, the actual city hall poll, but well done for doing correct thing and and having like a lick of common sense.
1: Yeah. It shouldn't have had to come to students, you know, standing up before council and pretty much begging for this, but it sounds like it's the best possible result. And, you know, credit to those students and credit to the counselors and mayor and everyone who came together and did the now, right thing here. Yeah. It's a good story to I, end on.
0: This is great. Like we can make a difference. People just have to ask and People have to have some common sense and things can indeed change for the better. Well done. If you are one of those people who make things change for the better, you might be the subject of a future Vancouverada. All of these people that received this particular honor that is the subject of our Vancouverada today, a little tidbit from Vancouver's history with which we end every show, they are all recipients of something called the Freedom of the City.
1: Yes, this is an award that is enshrined in the Vancouver Charter. It requires council to have unanimous approval, but it lets them bestow the honor and the title of recipient of Freedom of the City Award. It's been around since 1936.
0: Oh, Ian, this is much too short. This is actually, basically, a Roman triumph. This is where the freedom of the city is derived from. This is a tradition that's been going on for thousands of years when cities want to honor someone. They allow people to, like, retain their titles as they walk across the pomerium, given the freedom to be a general, to be a soldier inside the city of Rome in Vancouver's case, this is an honor that has been bestowed on people since 1936. They are knights at a special ceremony. They get a framed certificate and a medal, and then their names are inscribed in the Book of Freedoms.
1: Which is the best part of this. Like, it doesn't sound like you get any fancy keys. You don't get the key to the city. You don't get a real fancy title or anything like the old Romans do. You can't mark, you can't start your own militia out of this. But you you yeah, are in the book of freedom
0: called yeah,
1: you are in the book of freedoms, and that's that's kind of cool. Who has won this? So
0: re- recent freedom of the city honorees include Cornelia Oberlander, Margaret Mitchell, Judy Graves, Jim Patterson, Jim Green, not James Green. Milton, Wall. <laughs> imagine if they screwed that one up.
1: <laughs> it was a very or close vote on that one.
0: <laughs> and Mike Harcourt, uh, you know more. Other other things that have been honored include organizations like the Vancouver Police Pipe Band, or the YWCA, and if you scroll back all, all the way down to 1936, when this honor was originally being bestowed, you begin to find a lot of street signs, actually. Uh, so, Edward Beattie, Lachlan Hamilton, R.B. Bennett, Eric Camber, William Malkin, uh, basically a who's who of Vancouver place names from the current day.
1: So there you go. Do something important with your life, and then convince the City of Vancouver Council of the day that you deserved your name in the Book of Freedoms alongside the Seaforth Highlanders and others.
0: And if you know someone who could be in the Book of Freedoms already, uh, feel free to nominate them to City Council members of city council like have to nominate individuals for this award uh, themselves but write your city councillor if you think someone deserves this particular honor but that brings us to an end of another episode of the nominate the podcast yeah (laughs) okay (laughs) for legged boot media i'm matthew naylor
1: i'm ian bushfield good night